Well, good morning. We're going to be in Philippians chapter 3, so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn there. I want to talk to you this morning about um, motivation a little bit. Now, it's not going to be a motivational speech or anything like that, but I want to talk to you about like, the motivations for why we live the way that we do. Why it is that we are believers. Why we come and gather at places like this and sing songs. I mean, when you think about what we do, it's fundamentally kind of a weird thing. Don't you think? I mean, when you really break down how it is that, that we live our lives, there is, there is some strangeness to it. We have our own lingo. We're like a, a sect of society that talks to each other in really weird ways. Whenever something good happens, we say, praise the Lord. We talk about sin and needing forgiveness the world just doesn't understand that. We, we gather in, in groups of people every Sunday, sometimes with people who are complete strangers, oftentimes with people hopefully that we're growing in community with and getting to know. We have somebody who leads us in singing songs to God who is invisible and all-powerful immutable. And then we sit and we listen to an ancient book, a book that has about 3,500 years of history recorded in it. And we take lessons from that book, we apply them to our lives, we learn about Jesus, we we believe in a man who 2,000 years ago died a horrible death in public execution And three days later was raised again from the dead, launched off of a mountain, up into the clouds, and then said, I'm coming back the same way. That's weird. I mean, don't you think? When you really start to look at it, you go, this is a weird thing that we do. It's weird that we gather in this way, believe what we believe. Why? Why do we do that? Well, Paul here is writing a letter to the Philippians. It's, it's been called not only the tenderest letter that Paul ever wrote, but also the most delightful because it's just chock full of joyous statements and expressions of praise, confidence, and rejoicing. Now, all of this is written despite the fact that Paul, at the time that he writes it, is in prison. This is one of his prison epistles. He is in Rome during his first imprisonment and is awaiting trial to face Caesar Nero at the time that he writes this. You can find the background for this letter in the closing section of the book of Acts as it details how Paul became imprisoned and and made his way by ship and shipwreck to Rome. You can also look at how the church was formed in Acts chapter 16, which tells of Paul's first visit to Philippi and, to the, uh, the, and tells the details of the founding of this church. You know, when Paul showed up at Philippi, he, he was looking for a way to meet people, and he heard there was a little prayer meeting, a synagogue uh, that, would, that would meet down by the river, and when he got there, it was just a bunch of ladies. Um, in, in those days, if you didn't have enough people to build a synagogue for, uh, for Judaism... 
Then they would gather at some public place and they would spend time praying and talking about the scriptures. Well, Paul shows up and there a gal named Lydia is converted to Christianity when she hears about the Jewish Messiah that came and died for her sins and was raised again from the dead. She became a believer and she opens up her house. Now Lydia was somewhat famous in that area because she was a seller of purple, which meant that she catered to royalty and to, to um, the very wealthy. And so that made her automatically somewhat popular uh, in, in that area. And when her house was opened up, which was undoubtedly a nice home, uh, people began to come and meet there and hear the scriptures. Of course, it wasn't too long before Paul irritated somebody. You know, Paul's kind of like, uh, well, kind of like me. <laughs> Everybody thinks it'd be fun to hang out with me until they actually do. You know, and then it's like, oh, man. I, I've got a short tolerance for that guy right there. Um, so sooner or later, you know, Paul runs into the, the problem of his own zealousness and, and personality. And, uh, and he ends up being arrested, both him and Silas. Paul's preaching throughout the city stirred up a great deal of interest and reaction. And finally, uh, as resentment grew, he ends up in jail overnight with Silas. And while they're in this prison, they're in this prison overnight, they're in stocks, they're, you know, hanging from chains in the prison cell, they begin to sing and worship God. They're weird just like us. And as they sing and as they worship God, God does something amazing. An earthquake happens and the chains that are holding them just kind of fall off. And Paul and Silas get up and they're just kind of hanging out they're about to walk out of the prison and then the Philippian jailer comes running in and he thinks, oh man, for sure they've already fled. They've already left. And he thinks, oh man, I'm going to be responsible for this. And in those days, if you were a Roman guard who lost your prisoner, you would be tortured and executed, not only you, but you and your whole family. So this Philippian jailer is about to commit suicide because he thinks, I, I, the only way to spare my family and really, my own torturous um, end is to just off myself right here. And right then, Paul cries out and says, hey, hey, don't, don't do any harm to yourself. Don't do anything. And, and the Philippian jailer is just blown away that they didn't run. And he goes, what, what do I need to do? <laughs> just, just tell me what I need to do. There's no reason for you to want to spare my life. And that was the connection, that was the inroad for Paul to share the gospel and talk about how God had spared his life. And that Philippian jailer was converted. And so from there a church grew and this wonderful work of God began. And, and Paul eventually traveled on to other cities where he was again imprisoned and sent now to Nero. So it's to this church that Paul is writing from Rome. This church that was founded with Lydia and the Philippian jailer. This church that God had miraculously gathered and formed and is now growing. Now the problem is, is that everywhere that, that Paul went, there were people who kind of came behind him and they started just sort of picking away at Paul's gospel, picking away at his teaching. What they would do is they would come in and say, oh, yeah, you know, Paul's got a great thing going, and, and we're really happy that you've come to know who the Messiah is through Paul. Now, 
if you'll just convert to Judaism, well, the people are like, well, I, I mean, if that's what's required, I'll, I'll, yeah, convert to Judaism. How do you do that? Well, circumcision. Wait a minute. <laughs> Hold on. Uh, explain this to me again. That's just how you, I, I don't, I think Jesus already loves me. You know, they, they're trying to find ways around this and, and they're adding to the commandments, adding to the requirements. You see, the, the debate for them in those days was, do I have to become a Jew in order to become a Christian? How do I become a part of God's covenant people? So Paul is preparing the church at Philippi for these people. And he, he, he's telling, hey, don't get caught up in this stuff. It's all about the grace of God. You are saved by faith, not through circumcision. And in chapter three, we pick up now the story of, uh, of Paul and how he's addressing the Philippian church there. Paul is discussing some things that the church at Philippi needs to look out for. And in the middle of warning them about those uh, that will come into the church and try to bind the Christians with their traditions that don't matter. Paul points them to what it has meant for him to follow Jesus. And so we read in verse two of chapter three, hey, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. In other words, they said, your boast here is circumcision that you think that's what makes you a part of the covenant people of God. It's not circumcision. It is the spirit of God that makes you a part of his covenant people. It's his spirit. And we're not boasting in the flesh, in the outward appearance of things like circumcision or marks in the body that would identify you as being a part of God's covenant people No, no, our relationship with God is based upon us walking with him in the spirit. Now, he says, though I myself do have reason for confidence in the flesh also. Okay, these guys are bragging about, you know, their confidence in their flesh. No, 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 we're we're the super Christians because we had a little surgery. I'm not sure it works like that. Paul now is saying, hey, um, Listen, if, if there's reason to boast in the flesh, I could boast in the flesh too. I mean, I'm, a one of, I'm one of your crowd. I'm one of your people. He says, if anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Hey, I, I could brag about a few things. I mean, on the eighth day after I was born, I was circumcised. I became a part of God's covenant people. Even though I'd made no decision to follow God, I'd made, there was nothing that made me a part of that other than this, this surgery, this operation. I could brag about that. I was I was born to Israel. I was born into the people of God. I was born into a specific tribe in Israel that is the favored tribe. You know, Paul's sense of identity used to come from where he came from. 
His sense of worth to God and value to God came from the group that he was a part of as opposed to God's personal and specific love for him and God's grace. Paul's sense of identity used to come from his nationality. He had roots. That's another way of saying that. He said, this is what I had at one point in my life. I had roots. First of all, national roots. If you're taking notes, you can write that down. Roots, subcategory, national roots. That is, I was a part of God's covenant people by birth. And as a result, God is automatically supposed to love me because I'm a part of God's covenant people. It's not unlike being an American today. There's a sort of national pride that was a part of Israel, was born into the culture of Israel. We are God's chosen people. And Paul grew up in that system. Now, it, when we compare it to America, it's kind of the same thing. If you get outside of this country and you begin to travel a little bit, you go to, say, Europe or you know, different parts of Mexico, you know, Americans, they really don't have a great reputation abroad. Matter of fact, if you want to be safe traveling in most you know, Islamic countries or third world nations, put a Canadian flag on your backpack and, and you are, you're in like Flint. They love Canadians. You got an American flag on your backpack, you're looking for trouble. You're like a target. Not because you're rich, but because you're lame, automatically. Now, we hear stories of Americans abroad, and we, we, we hear you know, uh, the different things that they do, you know, assuming privilege. Well, in the marketplace, you know, well, I'm an American. America. I deserve this. You know, people just bragging about, you know, well, how come nobody around here speaks American? Well, because you're in France. And it, technically, it's not American. It's English. <laughs> but that's the way we think. And that is the way that the Hebrews thought. There was a pride in their national identity. They, they, they saw themselves as already having an inroad with God simply by the fact that they were born as Israelites. So Paul says, hey, I can brag about some stuff. I had surgery eight days after I was born. Born into God's chosen people. Oh yeah, and I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. That makes you pretty special too because you know Jacob, who had the 12 sons who became the 12 tribes of Israel. Jacob had two wives. One was Rachel. That was the wife that he loved and adored. And then Leah, who he grew to love and adore by the end of his life. Now, in a day when polygamy uh, was, was kind of the norm, uh, Jacob went looking for a, a wife at his uncle's house, which, you know, makes sense. That's, that's the way you do things back then. He shows it up at Uncle Laban's house and he sees Rachel. He's like, oh man, she is a looker. You know, I, she comes out and I, I don't know what she was wearing, maybe high heels in the desert and she's got lipstick on and whatnot. He's like, va, va, boom. He sees her and he's like, man, I have got to have her as my wife. She's the one. I know, I know she's the one because that's the way all young men think 
<laughs> if she's pretty, she must be the one. Uh, let me tell you, it doesn't always work out great. Well, he sees her and he says, what do I got to do? And his uncle, who's kind of a shrewd man, a real businessman, he says, oh, well, that's real simple. You just, you work for me for seven years. And so Jacob does. He works for seven years. And he says, okay, we're going to have a little evening wedding. It'll be nighttime, nice and dark. And, um, you know, you and Rachel get married. And Leah, her sister, um, you know, she'll be there at the wedding too. And in the middle of darkness and in the evening wedding, um, Leah comes out with a veil on and he can't see anything but her eyes. And he's like, oh, it's Rachel. But it's not, it's, his ugly, it's her ugly sister, Leah. And, and so they go through the marriage ceremony and he takes her back to the tent and they consummate the relationship. He wakes up in the morning. He rolls over to look at Rachel and give her a little good morning kiss and he's like, oh, oh my what happened? He comes back out. He's like, you tricked me. And Laban's like, yeah, well, we have this custom around here. You know, you don't let go of the ugly older sister until, or the, you don't let go of the younger, prettier sister until the ugly older sister gets, gets married off. And so you, you're going to have to marry Rachel later. Well, how long is that going to take? Well, seven years is about the going price for a good daughter, you know. So he worked another seven years and got Rachel. Now Rachel had two sons. She had Joseph and Benjamin. Rachel is the chosen bride of Jacob, the one he worked 14 years to have. And during her second childbirth, when Benjamin was being born, she died in labor. And Joseph, shortly thereafter, um, ended up being shipped off uh, by his brothers to Egypt and, um, and they pretended that he was dead, that he had been devoured in the desert. And so now Jacob is left only with Benjamin. And so he loved Benjamin. Benjamin was the boy who could do no wrong. Benjamin is the one, when he sent the other brothers to Egypt to go find food, he kept Benjamin back, Okay? He kept Benjamin back. He said, no, no, no. This is my special son. This is the only remnant that I have of my beautiful wife, Rachel. And so when Paul says, you know, I was born of the tribe of Benjamin, what he's saying is, man, I'm, I'm the loved tribe. I'm the precious tribe. I'm the one that everybody was seeking to protect. I'm the one that everyone loved. I'm, I'm a part of this special group within the house of Israel. Now, here we see he had not only national roots, but he had familial roots, right? His sense of worth and value and identity came from his family, where he'd come from. Now, a lot of us can relate to that. Now, we, we relate to that in, in one of two ways. If you come from a family that has privilege, maybe it's a, a popular or a wealthy family, then there are certain expectations about life. You know, you just expect that you're going to have friends. You expect that life is going to be comfortable for you. You expect that you should be able to go out to eat at least once a week. And then you grow up and move out of mom and dad's house and you, you find out that life is not necessarily that easy. Or you marry somebody who's wealthy and maybe you do. Maybe you end up with that life. 
And, and so your identity, your worth, your value comes from this place of privilege. Now, there are another group of people, though, who don't share that experience. They come out of a place of not privilege, but maybe out of poverty or difficulty. And when they think about their worth and their value and their identity, they come to an opposite conclusion of I'm, I'm not valuable because my mother was an alcoholic and I, I grew up in a trailer park in White City. They reach an opposite conclusion. I have no worth, I have no value, and it's okay for the people around me to take advantage of me, to hurt me, or to use me because I don't have value. You see, this is the way human nature works. We are grasping for ways to find value in life, some form or sense of identity. This is what these these Jewish people who are coming in behind Paul with the gospel are doing. They're seeking to find something that makes them worth loving, worth dying for, worth treasuring. Paul says, I, I got a few of those things. <laughs> I was a, a part of the tribe of, or a part of the house of Israel, part of the tribe of Benjamin, circumcised the eighth day. I, I did it all. And, and, and on top of that, you, you want to talk about religious? Oh, man. I was religious as it gets. Notice in, in uh, verse 5, he says, of the tribe of Benjamin at the end there, a Hebrew of Hebrews as to the law. In other words, I didn't just own it nationally because I was a part of Israel, but, but I believed it. I was into the law. I was into the Old Testament, the Old Covenants. I was a Pharisee. Now, for those of you who don't know the history of the Pharisees, the Pharisees came out of um, the period of the Maccabean Revolt. And these were the most dedicated group of people to the Old Testament laws, specifically the first five books, the books of Moses, the Pentateuch. This group, this sect of of people in Israel, they were considered like the fundamentalist, um, you know, super hardcore Jews of the day. There would be something akin to, you know, if, if we had to, compare them to some group the way that we see maybe the fundamentalist islamic groups that are just crazy about keeping commandments keeping rules that's kind of where these guys were that was their their mindset as a matter of fact in the days of jesus there was a rabbi whose name was shemai and he was a very famous rabbi who founded a school right before jesus was born And Shammai was so strict about keeping the rules or the laws of Judaism that when his grandson was born during the feast of of Sukkot or uh, the feast of tabernacles in which Israel was required to go out and, and build tents or these little booths to sleep in under the stars. It was to remind them of uh, of, of that time that they were traveling through the wilderness. Well, this guy, Shemai, his grandson was born on that day, and he was afraid that his grandson, who had just been born, was going to not keep the feast of Sukkot. So um, he ripped the roof off of the house over the bedroom where his grandson lay with his daughter-in-law and opened it up to the stars so that he could be camped out as opposed to, you know, being in the house and breaking one of the commands. 
These are the guys who came up with really awesome rules, like you couldn't wear false teeth on Saturday because, you know, false teeth in those days were made out of wood. And um, if you had, you know, wooden teeth in your mouth, you were technically carrying firewood. And it could be used to start a fire and you're bearing a burden. Can't do that. It's a Sabbath. These are the guys that came up with really awesome rules. Like you could only take so many steps from your house on the Sabbath, because otherwise you'd be, you'd be laboring, you'd be working. And so uh, what they did, to, if they really needed to get somewhere, though, on the Sabbath, is they, they actually came up with this elaborate system of, of using string. And they would attach the string to their house, and then they would go off 100 yards and tie the string off to another building. They'd say, well, you know, now it's an extension of my house. And so if you needed to go into town, you just pulled string everywhere with you so that you could extend your property into the town where you could buy your groceries and do whatever you needed to do and then make it back without actually technically breaking the laws regarding the Sabbath. And Paul says, yeah, this was my crowd, man. When it comes to keeping the commands of God, oh, I was zealous, so zealous, willing to do it all. I was a Pharisee. As to zeal, I went so far that I was even persecuting the church. I was so zealous that when I heard about Christians claiming to have a Jewish Messiah and establish a new kingdom and they're messing with the rules of Judaism, I wanted to kill them. And I did. I imprisoned whoever I could and had executed whoever I could. Now, we all are familiar with the story of Paul, so the, there's a, a sense in which we're kind of handicapped to really thinking about that. But if I came up here today and I, and I said to you, hey, um, I just want to tell you a little bit about my background. I used to kill Christians. I've got probably 100 dead Christians under my belt. I think that would hit you a little differently, don't you? And that was Paul, so zealous in religion for God, even the right God, that he's killing God's people. Because it's all about keeping the rules. It's all about honoring God through the keeping of the commands. So he says, hey, what did I have? What did I have? Well, I had... I had roots, man. I had a a national identity. I had a familial identity. I had religion, not just roots, but I had religion too. And I was the most zealous religious person you'd ever meet, even to killing God's people because I was so zealous. Not only that, but I also had, had a righteousness that was my own. I kept the commands. As to the righteousness under the law, he says, I was blameless. I did it all. Every little command. I didn't wear false teeth. I'd string the string. I'd keep the Sabbath. I never built a fire. I was zealous. And I had a righteousness that I owned because I had kept the rules. Now check out the transition in this next line. 
it should, for all of us, floor us. Okay, you ready? Here it goes. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Here, listen to what he's saying. He's saying, Philippians, know this. I used to have a worth, a value, an identity that was in my family, my nation, the kingdom I was a part of. I used to have a a sense of worth and value that came out of my religious zeal. I'm a believer, and I'm a zealous believer. I used to have a, a sense of my own righteousness that I owned because I had worked so hard to gain it. And I knew that God loved me because I had worked for it. I had earned it. I used to have a self-righteousness that was a powerful, powerful thing in my life. And then I gave it all up to follow Jesus. Okay? I gave it all up because you know what I found? I found that knowing him is better than everything I used to have. As a matter of fact, if I was going to weigh this out, if I was going to compare this in some way, I would say everything I gave up to follow Jesus, my nationality, my familial roots, my religious dogma, my sense of self-worth through self-righteousness, everything that I gave up to follow Jesus, I count it rubbish. Now, that word, rubbish, is a great word. It, 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 it literally means Dung. Dung. Now, Paul is saying here, if I was to make a comparison between the life I gave up to follow Jesus and know him and the life that I now have knowing him, I would say everything I gave up to follow Jesus is like poop. Literally, it's not a very polite way of saying poop. He literally is saying it's like crap. Now, can you say that? Can you say that? Here's here's what he said. He said, you know what I lost? You know what I lost to follow Jesus? Crap. That's what I lost. Dung. It's worthless. Meaningless. I, I, I'm an out, avid outdoorsman. I love, I love going backpacking and camping. and It's one of my favorite things. Matter of fact, today after church, uh, as soon as I can get back to the house and get packed up, we're going to go up to a high mountain lake and do some fishing and take uh, our boys, me and uh, my, my wife's cousin's husband, which that's confusing, but he's here. And we're, we're going to go uh, backpacking as well with his sons. It's going to be awesome. We, we're going to eat meat around a campfire and you know, roast marshmallows and slave fish. It's going to be incredible. 
I love that stuff. I love all of it. I love the inconvenience of it. There's something about the inconvenience of it that, that's just wonderful. It's like, I'm going to go into the woods. I have to walk a long ways to get there. I wear everything that I'm going to need on my, on my back. Then I show up. I build my own shelter. I build a fire from scratch to keep me warm at night. I have to catch some food if I want to eat good. Well, that's not technically true. I always bring enough but I like to think of it that way in my mind. I love the inconvenience. And there's, even, there's this one part, though, that's an inconvenience, and no matter what you do, it's always awkward, and that's going to the bathroom out in the woods. Now I know, since Jeff is gone, I'm really pushing the line as to what I can get away with here, but you're gonna have to bear with me for just a minute, okay? You have to dig a hole, it's just, you're out in the open, it doesn't feel very private. There's that little part of you that's hoping nobody's coming up the trail. It's, it's not nice. A couple of weeks ago, I went backpacking into the Trinity Alps wilderness in North, Northern California. And we, we hiked up a grueling four and a half miles up to this beautiful lake. And we get up top there and we're all just, we're tired and we spend the day kind of fishing and whatnot. And then um, that that next day, we backpacked out of there up to another lake, which was several miles further and even steeper to climb up to that. We stayed the night there, and it's there that we discovered that one of the guys who was with us had left his fishing pole at the previous lake when we were pumping water to fill up our, our water bottles. And so we're, we're going to have to backtrack to get his fishing pole. But it's like, it's a, you know, like a $50 fishing pole. We're going to have to just do it. So we backpacked as far as the trail went, and then we sent him on it by himself the rest of the way. But he did it. He went back, and he, he got it. And, you know, we were wondering, the whole night we spent wondering about this fishing pole, you know, that was left at this lake. And, man, we got to go back and get that. You know what we never even thought about? Is picking up what we buried. You know, in the hole next to the trail. We never wanted to pack it with us. There was, no, there was never a thought in our minds like, hey, we should take that home. It's valuable. <laughs> right? Listen. Listen, okay? This is what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, the life I gave up to follow Jesus, why would I pack that with me? Why would I take it with me? It's crap. The surpassing greatness of knowing him is far more valuable than anything I could have buried back there. I love knowing him. I love seeing him. I love having him speak to my heart and live through my life. I love even the suffering that I go through for his name's sake. I love it all. Because knowing him is better than anything I could give up. He said, this is what I had. I had roots. I had religion. I had self-righteousness. This is what I lost when I followed Jesus. I gave all of that up. And it was like crap. And then he says, and it's worth it. What I had, what I lost, and why it's worth it. Here's why it's worth it. You ready? relationship I get to know him 
I get to know Jesus. There's nothing better than that. While reading a a book called God is the Gospel, these words from John Piper rocked me. The critical question for our generation and for really every generation is this. If you could have heaven with no sickness, with all the friends that you ever had on earth and all the food that you ever liked and the leisurely activities that you ever enjoyed and all the natural beauties that you ever saw and all the physical pleasures that you ever tasted and no human conflict and no natural disasters, could you be satisfied with heaven? If Christ were not there? Do you feel the weight of that? Do you feel the impact of that on your heart? What if you could have the perfect eternity? Your family is present. Your friends are there. Every natural comfort. No more suffering. No more sickness. No more disease. No war. No suffering of any sort. And you could live that way for eternity. The only thing is you don't get Jesus with that. Would you go for that? Would you jump at that chance? The question for Christian leaders is, do we preach and teach and lead in such a way that people are prepared to hear that question and answer with a resounding no? How do we understand the gospel and the love of God? Have we shifted with the world from God's love as a gift of himself to God's love as the gift of a mirror in which we like what we see. Have we presented the gospel in such a way that the gift of the glory of God in the face of Christ is marginal rather than central and ultimate? If so, I pray, John Piper says, that this book might be one way that God awakens us to see the supreme value and importance of the light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Listen, nothing fits a person to be more useful on earth than to be ready for heaven. This is true because of the readiness Because readiness for heaven means taking pleasure in beholding the Lord Jesus. When we are really prepared on earth, when we are really prepared on earth for eternity, we love Jesus now in the same way that we will love him supremely forever and ever and ever. Listen, the streets of gold are not the main attraction when you get to heaven. It's not it. Heaven's not even the main attraction. Not angels. Nobody's going to be going, oh my, look at the angels. You know what we're going to do? We're going to fall down on our faces and join the angels. Crying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come and we will fall down over and over and over again because as we see his glory, we're gonna go, this was worth it. This was worth everything that I gave up to follow Jesus. 
every pleasure I missed out on, everything that I gave up to follow him, this was worth it to know him, to see him, to be with him. Nothing would bless this world more than people who are more like Christ. For in likeness to Christ, the world might see how beautiful he really is. He says this, this is why I do what I do. This is why it's worth it to give up all that stuff. This is why it's worth it, because I have Christ and I know him. Not only that, but he goes on, he says, it's not just knowing him, let's keep going here. He says, but also, um, I've suffered, verse uh, eight there, indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God that depends on faith, that I might know him, the power of his resurrection, may share in his sufferings and become like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Here's what he's saying. He's saying the other thing that makes it worth it is not just knowing him, but having a righteousness that's not mine. A righteousness that's given as a gift. You see, Paul led a very strict, disciplined life. Now, when, when he became a Christian, he didn't just cast off restraint and go live crazy, but he was trying to earn God's love. Do you know what it's like to try and earn somebody's love? You ever had that kind of a relationship in your life? Where no matter what you do, you can never do enough. Have you ever poured into that bottomless pit of a person's soul where you work and work and work and no matter what you do, it's not worth it. And Paul's conception of God, that's, that's basically what he was. A bottomless pit of endless service. He wants more, he wants more, he wants more. So he lived that way trying to fill that bottomless pit with one bucket of self-righteousness and effort at a time. But then, he found righteousness that comes by faith. That is, the guarantee that God loves us has paid the penalty for our sins through the death of his son on the cross, and he accepts us when we simply believe that he's that loving and that good. (laughs) What a relief. To, To work from a place of the pit is full and bubbling over and he loves us with an overflowing, overwhelming love, not because I'm working so hard at this thing, because he loved me before I put any effort in. He loved me when I was still in my sin, when I was still unrighteous. He goes, oh, I'll tell you, living in faith has been one of the greatest blessings of my life. 
to know that I'm accepted because of Christ. I don't have to justify myself any longer. I'm not worth it because I work hard. I'm worth it because God has set his sovereign love upon me. That's it. The only thing that gives me value. As a, as a side note, at our church, you know, I end up doing a, um, counseling and I end up with couples a lot of times who are in, in troubled situations in their marriage. One of the first things I, I like to go over with them is to talk about covenantal love because it changes the way in which you interact with one another. That is, you know, I love you because you're convenient for me is not really love. Or I love you because you make me happy is not really love. I love you because my life is better with you is not really love. Actually, let me tell you what love looks like. Love looks like this. This is the hardest thing I've ever done to lay my life down for you. It costs me emotionally and physically really every ounce of energy that I have. And I have hurt more at your hands than in any other but I love you. And I'm going to keep loving you until Jesus comes back. That is covenantal love. And let me tell you what happens is that the relationships change when they begin to grab a hold of that. The dynamics of how they work together change. They begin to look at one another and say, hey, listen, this is, this is not about you being an inconvenience to me, but it's now a question of How can I respond to an undying, unrelenting, all-consuming pursuit of loving me? How do I respond to that? I respond by laying my life down for you. You you begin trying to out-love one another and out-serve one another. And as as a part of that process, you grow in the depth of your love for one another. You grow in trust. And you can rebuild all that sin is broken. It's a wonderful, wonderful truth. Guys, this is our relationship with God. This is it right here. He says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. And it's, it's irregardless of your performance, how well you've done in the last week or year or 10 years or how much sin you have tucked away and swept under the carpet. I love you regardless of any of it. And you know what we begin to do when we experience the grace of God is we begin to respond. We go, really? There's a part of our hearts that doesn't want to believe it. There's a part of our hearts that still struggles with it. But Really? And we keep coming back to grace. We come, keep coming back to the gospel. We go, again? You love me? But I blew it. He goes, yeah, I know. I knew that before I started loving you. Really? And we grow in our commitment and our love for him as a consequence of that grace. So he says, man, one of the blessings One of the reasons I gave up all that crap to follow Jesus is because knowing him is wonderful and being saved and justified by faith is wonderful. Not only that, but to top it all off that I might share in his sufferings, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. I don't think here that Paul is thinking so much of power displayed in the resurrection 
as much as the power that comes out of it, when he says to know the power of his resurrection. In other words, it's not that he's going, I'm just in awe of the fact that Jesus was raised from the dead. I don't think that's what he's saying here. I think what he's saying here is all of the results that have come from Jesus being raised from the dead, the power that has been released by God through the resurrection is incredible. I've seen other dead raised, Paul would say. I've seen the sick healed and the lame walk and souls that were destined for hell pulled from the clutches of the enemy, rescued. I have seen the power of God at work to give me strength when I I couldn't carry on to heal broken hearts and mend the wounded. Oh, the power of his resurrection. It's, it's an evidentiary power. It is the evidence and the seal that everything Jesus did and said was true. The power of his resurrection is a justifying power. It is the receipt and proof that the sacrifice of the cross was accepted as payment in full for our sins. The power of his resurrection is a life-giving power. It means that those who are connected with Jesus Christ have the same life and resurrection life that Jesus has. The power of his resurrection is a consoling and comforting power. It promises that our friends and our loved ones who are dead in Christ will live with him and one day we'll live with them forever too. That's the power of the resurrection. All that has come as a result of Christ being raised from the dead. And so this leads us to our final thing. He said, this is what I had. This is what I lost. I lost the crap. This is why I love it. Because <laughs> I know him. I'm living in the power of the resurrection. And he says, this is how I live as a result. Final verses here, verse 12. Now that I have already obtained, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect. In other words, I'm not perfect. God's still working stuff out in me. I'm still growing. That's what the apostle Paul says, right? But I press on to make it my own because Jesus Christ has made me his own. Ready? He says, I own it because he has owned me. I own it because I'm owned. This is not just my, my dutiful preaching of religious values. I believe every word of it. I'm living solely for that purpose. I'm not perfect. I still got flaws. God's still working it. But I believe every word that I'm telling you right now. One day, Jesus is going to raise me from the dead. My sins have been washed away by the death of Jesus. I believe there will be a new heaven and a new earth and a righteous king who will sit on an eternal throne and rule over everything and every tear will be wiped away and every sickness will be vanished. I believe every word of that, Paul would say, I own it because I am owned. He bought me with his precious blood. He says, brothers, I do not consider that I have completed that work or made it all my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward 
to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. How do I live as a result of this? He says, I own it because I am owned. And secondly, forgetting what lies behind, I lean forward. Listen, some of you are living in what lies behind. Some of you today sitting in this room, measure your worth and value by everything that has already happened that you cannot change. And Paul says this, listen, I can't change what has taken place, but there is this one thing that I can do. Forgetting that stuff, I, I turn, I make a shift, I press on for the mark of the high call of God in Christ Jesus, the upward call. In other words, I'm not going back, I'm moving up. The failings of yesterday, I'm burying that with the crap I gave up to follow Jesus. Okay? And I'm moving forward now. I'm set on winning, on crossing the finish line, on catching the prize. I'm following him with all of my heart. It's the upward call of God in Christ Jesus to give him our all. How do I live as a result? I'm running to win. I'm running to win. He says, I own it because I'm owned and forgetting what lies behind, I lean forward, I press in. You, you know that moment when you're watching the Summer Olympics and there's the, the, the ribbon that goes across the end, right? And there's two guys and they're neck and neck. And what do they do as they get close to the line? Chest out, what do they do? They're reaching, right? They want to be the first ones to break that tape. Every fiber, every muscle in their being is straining, it's leaning, it's pressing in to cross that finish line to take the prize. Paul says, I own it because I'm owned. Forgetting what lies behind, I lean forward. I'm pressing on that I might win the prize. That I might win the prize. (laughs) I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And then he says this to the Philippians. Here it is, you ready? Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Listen, I don't know what stage of growth you are in in your relationship with God. I don't know what level of commitment each one of you has towards Jesus, but I know this. Time has a way of messing with people. Time has a way of making you forget what the upward call of Christ Jesus is to grow, to pursue, to lean in. Time has a way of saying, okay, I'm I'm just tired. I'm just tired. If you've been a believer for a while and you feel that you are falling backwards, press in. Come to him. Spend time with him, not in a works way, like you're trying to earn something. Forget all the stuff that you tried to earn. It's crap. Leave it alone. But press into Jesus and say, I love you. I just want to be with you. 
I want to love you today the same way I will love you in eternity in heaven. I want to love you that way. Give your heart to him. Those of you who are just growing, just starting out, you're, 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 you're new in this. You're trying to understand what it means to follow Jesus. And, and there's that trap that comes along. And it's like, okay, so I just need to know more theology. Well, listen, theology is great. It's wonderful. It's a great tool that God puts in your repertoire. Okay? It's great. That's not how you grow. You grow by abiding Jesus said, if you hang out with me, you abide in me, you will what? What will you do? You'll bear much fruit. I'm the vine. You're the branches. Life, growth, satisfaction. It comes from me. It comes from me. You hang out with me. Listen, you've got one job. If you're a new believer, if you're here and you're you're trying to figure this whole thing out, you've got one job as a believer. Love Jesus with all your heart all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. Give him everything. Talk to him. Spend time with him. Any chance that you got to turn your heart to him, just do it. That's what it, that's what it means to follow Jesus. That's what it means to love him. And keep doing that till the day comes where the ribbon breaks over your chest. Amen? Father, We are not self-made people. We are not those who obtain a sense of worth and value from the family that we were born into, the nation we're a part of, the religious zeal that we have. No, Lord, we obtain all of that from you and the glorious good news that you have set your love upon us. Protect us as your people. Protect your church. Keep us coming back to the inexhaustible grace that you have provided for us through Jesus. Lord, I pray that today hearts would be refreshed by your spirit, that those who have been bound by religion would be set free. For those who have grown cold in their love for Jesus, God, stoke the fire of their hearts by your spirit for those who have been packing around crap that is weighing them down, reminding them of, their ter- of the past that, that, they have, that they have had, Lord. I pray that they would be set free and that those burdens would be removed and that today they would leave the stuff that is behind behind and press on for the mark. Refresh the hearts of your people. Not to just be zealous to be Christians, but to be zealous in loving you. Grab our affections, turn our attention once again to you. And Lord, I pray that we would be the kind of people that when we hear that question, could could we stand living in heaven forever if there was no Jesus, that without even thinking, our instantaneous reflex would be, heaven forbid, There's no way that heaven would be heaven without him. May we love you now in the same way that we'll love you then. In the name of Jesus and for the glory of Jesus. Amen. Amen.